says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And Father, we humbly ask just for the help of your Holy Spirit to continue now in our worship of you and your Son. And, and we just ask, Lord, that you take away uh, the distractions from our hearts and minds, Lord, that uh, even that game this afternoon, Lord, would not be something that would keep our attention from giving to you, Lord. The time, the devotion, the attention you deserve, Lord, you are greater than all things. You're worthy of our worship and our attention. And we ask now, let us not miss, Lord, anything that you would want to say to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the word of God. Prepare us each accordingly, Lord. You know what that means? And we ask now you would speak to us through the ministry of your spirit and the word of God. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps you at some point in your past have failed greatly or maybe even recently you've kind of recognized some failures in your own life. I want you to be encouraged this morning to know that God even prepares for your failures. In fact, it tells us in Psalm 86 verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good, ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. I think that verse, Psalm 86.5, is a good verse, very fitting certainly for this book as we look at this minor prophet, uh, Jonah, from the Old Testament. We call these books the minor prophets, books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We refer to them as major prophets, not because uh, one particular prophetic book has more major or important truths than the other minor or less important truths. That's just a way that we reference these books to kind of describe the 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 duration or the length of the books, but this book really reveals to us the great mercy and the great grace of God. Uh, and it shows us a lot about the nature of God. And we see the great mercy of God despite the rebellion and the stubbornness of man. And there's sort of a contrast here. The great mercy of God in contrast to many times the great stubbornness and great failures of man. Despite the great wickedness and rebellion of a city and nation, we see that God desires to give to them mercy. And despite the great stubbornness and rebellion of even one of God's servants, Jonah, we see that God shows mercy and grace to him. Now, look with me again, if you would. Let's just reacquaint ourselves, verses 1 through 3 here that we read. It tells us, The Lord came to Jonah, saying to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it. Notice, For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, look what he does, arose and sought to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So our record in this book opens by showing to us here that God's heart was to show mercy to a very, very wicked 
people. In fact, a people so wicked that it, it tells us that their wickedness had come up before God. And yet, instead of judging them, God wants to show them mercy. But we notice this is the story of Jonah. Many of us perhaps are even somewhat familiar. God's chosen messenger does not want to cooperate with God's desire. He doesn't want to cooperate with God's plan to show mercy. Now, verse 1 informs us that God's servant and chosen messenger was a man named Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we know from 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah, at this point in time, historically, was already functioning as a prophet. This is actually sort of Jonah sharing his own testimony as he records these things for us of these experiences in a time period where he struggled in his own life, even as a servant of the Lord. And we know at this time, Jonah had already been speaking on God's behalf. He had been prophesying during the time historically of the reign of King Jeroboam II over Israel, a time around 786 to 746 B.C., and it tells us this in 2 Kings chapter 14. It says that though the king had done evil in the sight of the Lord, that he also, King Jeroboam, restored the territory of Israel, listen, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer, which is an area around the Galilee region in Israel. So from 2 Kings 14, we know the prophet Jonah had already been ministering during this time. He had predicted God's plan and encouraged God's people and something had come to pass that he had prophesied about the restoration uh, of the territory there in Israel. And the point I bring that up to your attention is this, is this was not Jonah's first assignment from God. When we read here the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, this was not the first time that the word of the Lord had come to him with a message that he was to go and faithfully speak on God's behalf. He was not a novice at hearing the voice of the Lord speak to him. He was not a novice at obeying God's direction. The difference is this time he doesn't like or agree with what God's asking him to do. This time he's not in tune with and he's not really honestly very thrilled about what God wants him to do. Jonah, understand, he knew and loved God. And in fact, Jonah really loved God's people, the, the people of Israel. He had a great love for his nation. I mean, Jonah, we'll see, was a very nationalistic man. He was a strong patriot. He had a strong support for his own nation, but yet any good man and any good thing can also get out of balance at times. And that's what we see happening here with Jonah. His patriotism and his love for God's people specifically caused Jonah to lose touch with the reality that God loves all people of all nations and tribes and tongues and kindred. And, and, and God wants to reach all people. Not just his own people, God loves all people and God wants to reach all people. And this is why we read in verse two that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was located in Gentile, non-Jewish or what we would call pagan territory. It was in the area, sort of in the heart of the Assyrian Empire 
It was located east of the Tigris River, uh, quite a, a ways to the east, about 550 miles northeast of Israel. It was modern-day Iraq. And Nineveh was actually opposite of where we would call the modern-day area of Mosul or Mosul in Iraq. And this is where God is asking for Jonah to go now and to speak his word. To travel that distance would require about a month-long journey in that time. And we're told that Nineveh, which ultimately as well, would become the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, was a great city. Great in the sense that it was a vast and geographic size. It takes Jonah almost three days, it tells us in this book, to walk across the breadth of the city. So it was great in its size. It had a large population, like a major metropolitan city, many advanced developments and, and structures. And Nineveh, like any large developed urban city, also became great in its problem with sin and immorality. And like a lot of great cities with great populations and a lot of great advancements and, and great things, sometimes great becomes their wickedness. And great became the sin and the immorality in the city of Nineveh. And that's why God says here, go to it, cry out against it, speak to it. For their wickedness has come up before me. So the reason God sends Jonah there is the implication their wickedness has come up before God's view that God could no longer further extend patience to these wicked people. Their wickedness had been persistent. It had been relentless. Their sin continued chronically and God waited in his long suffering and was patient and patient and patient. But there came a point in time, the Bible says God's spirit will not strive with a man forever. And here God has been patient and gracious, but the chronic wickedness of these people. In fact, chapter 3, their own king speaks about the evil and the intense violence of these people, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrian people. And we know just historically that the Assyrians were known to be a very barbaric and brutal people, particularly when they conquered territories. Historians tell us that when they would capture and conquer territories, they would subject people to cruel forms of suffering, that they actually would, would rip out people's tongues, they would amputate people's limbs, they would cut off ears and nose, and, and they would set hooks into either the roof of people's mouths or through their lip or nose area and drag them along as they would lead them out of the territories where they would conquer them. They would set people's wives and children on fire in front of them and sometimes even leave piles of skulls as memorials to indicate this would be the fate of anyone who would resist the Assyrian Empire. So again, important to recognize these were a cruel barbaric people in their treatment of innocent individuals if i could put somewhat of a, a illustration to it in some ways some of the things we hear today some of the cruel harsh barbaric practices of perhaps maybe terrorist groups like isis and some of our modern things that we see where we think oh my goodness the atrocities of how innocent people are treated, the cruel, barbaric... Well, well, this is the idea here of the people of Nineveh. This nation and people group was reaching the full threshold now 
of their great sin and wickedness before God. And if you would, that they've kind of, after a long time now, they've kind of crossed the line morally. And their sin and wickedness has come up before the view of the Lord to where he could no longer look upon it and not judge it. And not do something in his righteousness to judge them for their evil and wickedness. And God's about to bring destruction and judgment upon this people, upon this nation. And yet God's heart, though grieved and angered by their wickedness, simultaneously is also stirred with compassion. And God's heart is moved with mercy towards these people in their lost condition, burdened for their souls. And God's mercy was stirred and he desired to offer them an opportunity to be spared if they would repent. To, to give them a chance that if they would repent humbly, that God would offer mercy and spare them. So that's why God asked for Jonah now to go there and to sound the alarm prior to the judgment of God. Now, this is what in our book we'll see becomes the tremendous struggle for Jonah. This becomes hard for him to offer a measure of God's mercy to a people who seem so evil so barbaric and cruel and violent and wicked beyond imagination. And Jonah likely hated these people and had a strong prejudice towards them. Jonah probably wanted to see them be punished. He wanted to see them perish in his own understanding of their, their, what they had done. And Jonah also, we're going to see, he knew God's nature. And he knew that despite their great wickedness, that if they were willing to repent, that God would be nice to them. And that bugged Jonah. I, Lord, you're too nice to people. I, you're sure, I know, and I know if I go there and say anything, that you're going to be good and you're going to be nice and you're going to spare them. And that grated on Jonah. It bothered him to no end. So the Lord tells Jonah to go there as his missionary to preach and warn these people. But verse 3 says, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and found a ship heading to Tarshish, paid the fare to go with them from the presence of the Lord. So here's, here's Jonah's response now. He gets his missionary assignment. God tells him what to do. And here's Jonah's response to the instruction of the Lord. It's direct defiance. It, it is just complete disobedience and rebellions against what God asked him to do. It says he seeks to flee to Tarshish to try and get away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish was a seaport located in the area of Spain, which is in that day probably the farthest point west. Now, start to put the dots together. That's the complete opposite direction that God's just asked him to go. God has just asked Jonah to, by his obedience and obeying the command of the Lord to go basically 600 miles to the east and Jonah now makes plans to go 1,200 miles to the west. The complete opposite direction. And he's going to go twice as far the other way to create as much space possible between obeying what God has asked him to do. Hearing what God asked him to do, he basically declines the assignment. He says, Lord, thanks for the assignment. Not interested. And not only not interested, there's no way I'm doing that. And he gets on a boat and, and, and heads the complete opposite way. He probably is really refusing, thinking that maybe God will just tap somebody else 
And if I refuse, God will just be forced to send someone else. Basically, Jonah does not want to cooperate with God's plan. Jonah does not want to cooperate with what clearly the will of God was. And so in disobedience with God, he tries to run away from the presence of the Lord. He thinks, I'm just going to avoid this whole thing. And, and he actually seems to think, I'm just going to avoid God. And I'm going to get as far away from God's involvement and God's leading and what God wants. So he tries to run from God himself as if you could somehow run from God and avoid his involvement in your life. But he's willing to try in his rebellious and disobedient attitude. So it says he goes down to Joppa, which is about 20 miles away to a seaport. He finds there, look what it says, he finds there in Joppa a boat and the ship is destined, as I said, as far away from what the will of God could possibly be, it's headed to Tarshish, the opposite way of where God was asking him to go. I have to wonder, perhaps the ship was called something like the SS Satan or, 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 or you know, something like that. But he gets on board and decides, that's it. I'm just, I, look at this. I found a boat. I found a way to escape God's purposes and plans. So he buys himself a one-way ticket to run away from God. A one-way ticket to disregard and not follow God's will, to avoid God's will. And perhaps this morning in your life, you in some way have been avoiding God's will. You've been avoiding what you know the will of God is in some way, whatever it may be in your life, and you're trying to avoid God's will. Well, look, let me, in light of verses 1 to 3, if I could just draw a few lessons here from this. First of all, it is impossible to run away from the presence of the Lord. If you haven't figured that out yet, it says here, interesting, two times, Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He was trying to run from God or to hide from God. Uh, look, as if somehow a person could actually do that, that you could avoid God's presence or God's involvement in your life. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell or the belly of a whale, you will still be there, God. There's nowhere that we can run from God's presence. Running from God is about the most vain effort any human being can be involved in. God is involved in every aspect of, of life and we can't run from his presence or run from his plans or purposes. Secondly, I would say this by way of application, whenever we disobey God's word in any capacity, it's always a path downward. Whenever you and I disobey God's word, it is always a path downward. Do you take notice of the language the Holy Spirit, I think, purposely uses? Verse 3, the references, the continual emphasis to the word down. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Verse 5, it's going to say he goes down into the lowest part of the ship. And as we read on, we're going to see Jonah ends up going down into the stinky, acid-filled belly of a whale until God vomits him back out right where he started and says, how about we try this again and you obey this time? <laughs> and, and, and look, when we disobey God's word, I, maybe this is not a grand revelation, but when we disobey God's word, ladies and gentlemen, it never works out. It never works out. You know, sometimes there's that reality discipline thing we have to do with our own children or, 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 you know, with other believers pastorally. Sometimes it's like, okay, if you want to try that, give it a shot. 
And you kind of just let, how's that working out for you? Well, it's, it's kind of been a spiral downward. Yeah, that's usually how it works. We go down and down and ultimately we sometimes end up in the midst of a horrible pit. We just sink lower and lower. It never works out to disobey God's word. It's a path downward that often finds us stuck in a pit we don't want to be in. One other thing I would make mention of here is with Jonah's situation is take notice as well that whenever you want to disobey the Lord in your life, whatever that looks like, and whenever you want to not submit to God's will, the devil will always gladly provide an opportunity for you to do that. Do you take notice here in verse 3? It says he went down to Joppa, and what does it say? It says he found a boat headed all the way to Tarshish in the opposite direction from following God's will. And there's no mistake to this. The devil will gladly open up doors to offer you an opportunity of rebellion if that's what you're looking for. The devil is more than glad in the same way that God has a will for your life. The Bible tells us in, in 2 Timothy that there, there are those who the enemy has taken captive to do his will. So there's God's will and God's plan for your life. And then the devil has a will and a plan for your life as well. And in simplest terms, his plan and will for your life is to not do God's will, to do everything opposite of that. And if we choose in any way to not do God's will, if that's where our heart's at and we don't want to submit, the devil has no problem, I found, from what I've observed, working with the system of the world to accommodate your disobedience, to create open doors and opportunities and, and to do whatever he can to happily supply the circumstantial opportunity to help you turn away from God. He'll have a boat right there waiting for you, headed in the opposite direction. And, and, and so often this is the case. And this is important to remember because be aware, don't just make judgments based upon circumstantial things alone. You, you want to disobey God's word or you don't want to submit to God's will. And you say, well, well I mean, it seems to be working out. It seems to be that, you know, I mean, circumstantially, uh, there's an, a doorway there. There's a boat headed there. And, and I got on board with doing not what God's word says, or I'm doing, you know, what I know God doesn't want me to do, but, but it seems to be working out. It seems like it's going okay for now, but the storms are coming. And it never works out long term. But understand, you can't just look at circumstances. Well, it's okay because there's an open door. Listen, the devil will gladly open a door. He will gladly do that. He'll gladly have a boat ready for you to head the opposite direction. I mean, when we want to disobey God, it's amazing how the enemy will find ways to put a person in our life or a situation in our life to accommodate to help us in our disobedience. And we have to be aware of this and be very careful. And whenever we choose to disobey God, one final thing I'd say from verses 1 to 3 is there will always be a cost. What does it say Jonah did? It says he went down, he found a ship, and it says he paid the fare and got on board and went the opposite way of God's will. And I think this is a great reminder because that is a fitting illustration of what happens when we sin or rebel by turning away from God. There will always be a cost to disobedience. We will always pay the fare, if you would. There will always be a personal cost attached to any time we disobey God. 
Anytime we want to resist God's will, we will always end up bearing the cost in some way for our lives. Well, look at verse 4. This is where God's mercy starts to interject, I believe. It says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest of the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So here's the Lord's response to Jonah's rebellion, to Jonah's resistance, rather than God spitefully letting Jonah just go his own way and saying, that's it, I got plenty of other prophets. Instead of God just washing his hands of Jonah and writing him off or ignoring him, rather than God angrily punishing Jonah or striking him dead, God sends a storm. God sends, uh, if you would, into his personal experience some things that start to make it get a little unpleasant for Jonah. God orchestrates some circumstances to make it difficult for him. It says, notice verse 4, the Lord sent, specifically this storm. The Lord sent a great and mighty storm so severe, it says, that the ship was about to break apart. So God makes his path start to struggle and he tries to get Jonah's attention no doubt God is purposely causing the problems he sometimes purposely is causing the difficulties to awaken us to allow us to see man this 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 is hard this doesn't seem to be working out and sometimes that is what God is doing to try and awaken us and it wasn't God wasn't doing this stormy event here to break the ship God wanted to break Jonah's pride and to break the stubborn spirit that was going on within him this is what you call a storm of correction when we're going the wrong way God will at times send a storm of correction God can make things not only not work out circumstantially for us he can make life sometimes and what we face hard and unpleasant in a merciful loving way to try and open our eyes to try and break our stubborn streak or our rebellious spirit and, and to try and humble us and break us so that we'll turn around because of the storm of correction and go back and start heading the right way and embracing and following what the will of God is for us. Verse 5 says, When the storm happened, the mariners became so afraid that every man, look what it says, starts to cry out to his God. And they threw the cargo that was on in the ship into the sea to try and lighten the load. So, so bad did the storm conditions become. These experienced mariners who traveled on the waters all the time, they are actually terrified for their lives at this point. So this gives you an idea how severe the storm was. They're literally in desperation. It says every man crying out to their various gods. Hey, whatever God you believe in, now's the time to cry out to him. And so they're all crying out to their gods, begging for someone to spare them. And even it says there in verse 5, they're tossing the valuable cargo overboard from the ship. So this is, again, valuable you know, items that they have, merchandise, but they are in such desperation. This is how bad the storm is. Such desperation that, that they're pitching the, the cargo overboard. And I want you to notice here, now the other passengers on board with Jonah are suffering personal struggle as well. And now their lives are enduring hardship and they're even experiencing personal loss because of Jonah's disobedience and not following the will of the Lord. 
And those on board with him are now struggling as well. Notice Jonah's disobedience was now causing problems and struggles and even personal loss to others who were on board with him. To others who were connected to his life. His poor choices were unfairly impacting others. And can I say by way of application, that always tends to prove to be true. No man, no woman, I don't care who you are, truly just sins alone or, you know, the, the disobedient is not the only one who struggles. The person who's resisting God's will or not following God's plan or doing what God's leading them to do and they're, I don't want to, they're not the only one who struggles. Whoever else is connected to them or on board with them, whether it be family or just, you know, friends or, or other individuals, or, there always ends up being this ripple effect where other people end up struggling as well and end up to some degree, you know, uh, becoming like Jonah, risking now a personal shipwreck. And sometimes our wrong choices, it doesn't just jeopardize our safety, we risk potential shipwreck for other people. And perhaps this morning, in all honesty, you've seen that in your life. Maybe you've caused that. And maybe you can see, wow, man, as a result of what I did, the, the difficulty I caused to others, and, and I potentially shipwrecked other people, or maybe you did in some way cause loss to other people, and you recognize what your choices had done. Or maybe perhaps in some way you've been subjected to that. Maybe a, a child or a spouse or someone close to you became disobedient to the Lord and has done some foolish things. And now you, because you were on board with them and connected to that, you ended up suffering and struggling as a result of their poor choices. And, and you've suffered loss and difficulty because of what they've done. And you've been affected by that and impacted. Well, as they're struggling for their lives terrified, crying out to their gods. Look what verse 5 goes on to say. Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So Jonah just somehow ignores all that's happening circumstantially. He acts oblivious to all the turmoil, all the chaos. He just goes down to the lowest part of the ship in the midst of this storm, tries to escape reality and falls fast asleep somehow, trying to dismiss and ignore everything that's really happened. Let me just say, that is what you call a false sense of peace. Because some people, well, I don't know, what to, I'm at peace with everything. Well, that's a false sense of peace right there. If you can sleep through doing something like that, you're doing nothing other than demonstrating your heart is so cold and so hard and you are so selfish that you can be asleep when everyone else around you is struggling because of what you have done. And all a person really is doing at that point is they've lost their care for others and they're ignoring reality. But I'll tell you something. When we as human beings get stubborn sometimes and bent on our way and maybe we want to do our own thing, it is amazing how at times, like Jonah here, if we're headed in a wrong direction... It's almost as if people have this innate ability to be able to just kind of like ignore reality. And here's somebody, they're wrecking their whole family. And they're just totally ignoring the reality. Or here's somebody and they're causing all these difficulties and, and problems and they're just kind of like, they're half asleep and they're just ignoring reality. It's almost as if they have to pretend that nothing's going on. Because how else do you not see something like that? But here again, shocking to realize, here's Jonah. 
And the place where our hearts can go to, sadly, Jonah, is kind of pretending like everything is fine. Well, verse 6 says the captain of the ship, because everybody else is on deck praying, he comes down to Jonah. He says, what do you mean, sleeper? Perhaps if you're a teenager, you've heard that before. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will answer us so that we may not perish. So he says, hey, listen, there's a prayer meeting happening on deck. You're down here sleeping. Everybody else is trying their God. You need to come try your God. Whoever your God is, he says, get up here, call on your God, ask him to spare us so that we don't perish. Verse 7 says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So the rest of the crew, they're in this desperation mode. They sense at some point that something has happened and so they decide somebody's done something wrong. They're going to try and flush out who is the person who's caused all this chaos for us. So they start casting lots to determine and identify somehow, drawing straws, casting lots. Who's committed the crime on board? Who's the cause of all this problems? And God sovereignly, look at it, he overrules and he allows the casting of their lots to fall right on Jonah to identify him as the individual. Again, God won't let Jonah hide. He won't let him get away with what he's doing long term. God loves Jonah too much to not deal with him. He loves him too much and he wants to see Jonah get back on track. And so this is an evidence, really, of God's mercy. God exposes Jonah for his wrongdoing so that he can't hide from it and so that God could ultimately get him back on the right track. And this is God's mercy here, to win Jonah over again and again. God is relentless in his pursuit of people. I mean, absolutely relentless and persistent. Here's, here's why, because he doesn't want us to shipwreck our own lives. And we have a great ability to do that as human beings. And, and again, whether you know, it's the child that grows up in a Christian home and they decide, eh, I'm going to try and do my own thing. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm the captain of my own fate. I'm going to, and, and right, and then you'll go through a season and God will relentlessly do whatever he's got to do. Because he's, look, I don't want you to shipwreck your life. And so God will work and work to do whatever he's got to do. Or whether we take some detour, we make some series of mistakes. Boy, his love causes him to spare no efforts possible to do everything he can to expose us, deal with us, bring things to light, to cause us to come to a place of having that reality check. So they've identified it's Jonah. So they now rebuke him, verse 8, saying, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So it almost seems like an interrogation process starts to happen here. They're really upset that Jonah's the root of all this. Jonah answers, verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So interesting, Jonah, look at this, verse 9 there. Jonah knew his identity and he knew what was true about God Yet he was living in contradiction to exactly what he knew was true and right. He knew who he was. He knew who God was and what was true about God. But here is a man who knows the truth. He knows what's right, but he's living in contradiction to what he knows is true and right. 
And the reality is this, how sad but true that at times people can know the truth and they can know what's right and they stubbornly live in contradiction to it. And this is exactly what Jonah is doing in his stubborn human rebellion. He knows what's right, but he's just doing what's wrong. And how sad that we can be that stubborn and selfish where we can know what's right, but yet still live in contradiction and do what's wrong. So verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 10, because he had told them. So, so here's what we have here. The fear of God grips the hearts of these men and Jonah's now being rebuked by these unbelieving pagan people as God's servant. And they're now rebuking Jonah. And at some point in the process, Jonah, it says, had informed them that he was running from God. So Jonah had no problem, look at this, it says, admitting his own disobedience. He admits that what he was doing was wrong. He's acknowledging that what he has done is wrong. Yet though he can see his own error, he's not yet willing to stop. He can admit his own error he knows what he is doing is utterly wrong against God, but yet he doesn't want to change. He could, yeah, I'm, I'm running from the presence of God. Yes, I'm disobeying God and his word. Yes, I'm not following or submitting to God. And I, and I know it's wrong. Are you going to change? No. I don't want to. And at this point, he can see he's wrong, but he's not ready to stop doing what's wrong. He's not ready to change. And sometimes, boy, that's a sad place where people can be. Where they can, they can see they're wrong, they know they're wrong, but they love their sin too much to stop. Or they just don't want to change. They want to continue persisting in a wrong way in their human stubbornness. And even these ungodly men, seeing all the difficulty, they're saying to Jonah, verse 10, look at, why have you done this? And I almost sense in their questioning, they're saying, why would you, wait a minute, you said you know the one true God of heaven and earth who made the sea and the dry land? This is, this is who your God is? Don't you fear his power? Why would you run from a God like that? If you know the one true God, don't you realize that he can overrule anything he wants ultimately? And it's almost as if with better reasoning than Jonah, they're saying, don't you trust that the one true God has a better plan than you do? Don't you trust that, that, that ultimately that, that any path you can take is really never going to work out and God's plan would always be better than your plan? And it's almost as if they, they just can't make sense of this rationally. They can't find any good reason why someone would want to run from God. And there's a lot of truth to that. It's amazing. There is, there, there is no good reason why any person should run from God. But yet at times we do. There's no good reason why we wouldn't follow God's plan rather than our plans, but yet at times, sometimes we think we're smarter than God or, or we think somehow it'll work out if we don't do God's thing and do our own thing, if we disobey God's word and choose to be stubborn in our own attitude instead. And, and look, that never works out. And they're saying, why, why are you doing this? What are you doing? Don't you see the, the foolishness of that? And they're rebuking Jonah for this. Well, it tells us here, that they rebuke him. And then verse 11 says, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? We got to solve this. If you don't want to, they say, <laughs> for the sea was growing tempestuous. And he said to them, look at this, 
pick me up, throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know this great tempest is because of me. Now, Jonah knew within the storm was because of what he was doing wrong. He knew that. He was fully aware that this was something he had caused the stormy conditions. And often when we have caused a storm by our own choices or mistakes or foolish actions, it's usually not difficult for us. Well, I mean, it's not difficult for me to know when I created my own storm. You know, listen, I'm not saying every storm, every hardship, oh, we're going through a hard time. Must be we've disobeyed God and we're out of God's will. Look, that's not always the case. Be careful. Jesus sent the disciples more than once into a storm. And when they were in a storm, they were in the center of the will of God. They were safer in the storm than they were back on dry land comfortable. So sometimes storms are storms of perfection to perfect and strengthen and deepen our faith. And they're storms of revelation to reveal to us the power of Jesus who would walk on the sea and, and, and would do great and wonderful things. So not every storm means we're out of God's will, but I found in my own life an observation of others, usually when it's a storm of correction, it's pretty obvious. Usually when we've caused the storm because of our bad choices or poor decisions, like Jonah here, we're pretty clear on the fact that we've caused it. But what's Jonah doing? They say, what should we do? Jonah says, man, just throw me into the water and it'll all calm down and everything will be resolved for you. He's now trying to resolve the situation, look at this, without repenting. He says, look, just throw me overboard, let me drown, and things will settle down for you. I don't want to repent. I'm trying to help you, but I think I can fix this without repenting. Doesn't work. He doesn't want to repent, but he's trying to resolve it without repentance or doing what's right. And Jonah says, toss me in. If I drown, the sea will settle down. Jonah is so stubborn at this point. This man is willing to die rather than fulfill the will of God. He's saying, I would rather die than do God's will. <laughs> I'd rather die than, than do what God's asking of me. Here's the deal. Jonah did need to die. But he didn't need to die physically. He needed to die to himself. He needed to die to his own self-will and his own stubborn spirit. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the hardest death, the hardest death is not to end your own physical life. It's to die to the self-life. That is the most important and hardest death that there is, but that is what's necessary to truly follow the will of God, to die to yourself. Jesus would say in Luke 9, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus taught, if you want to follow me, step one, you have to die to yourself. You have to be willing to deny yourself, to deny the self-life that's just stubborn and rebellious and selfish, and that is a hard Hard death. <laughs> Hard death. But Jesus says, if you're willing to die to yourself, then you'll find life. You'll find the life I have for you. The best life, the most you know, fruitful and fulfilling life. And this is what Jonah needs here, but he's just willing to die rather than obey God's will. But verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. They couldn't bear the thought, we're not going to kill you. Something worse might happen to us. 
But they couldn't not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. It was getting worse and worse. So finally, they cry out. And look what they do. They pray to Jonah's God. We pray, O Lord God. <laughs> Please don't let us perish for this man's life. Don't charge us with his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Take notice, this is what you call God's sovereignty. Do you see God's sovereignty in this? Amidst all these vents, God uses it for the good, despite Jonah's rebellion, disobedience to God, you know, poor choices, God overrules it all and manages to use all those things for his good purposes. All these mariners on board who didn't know the one true God, look what they're doing now. Despite what Jonah did, they're praying pretty good prayer too. They're praying here in our story. It tells us that they're, they're you know, making sacrifices to Yahweh God in worship and dedication. They're making commitments to the Lord, offering vows. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me truly how God can work in the midst of all things for his good purposes. He uses all the bad things and the crazy stuff Jonah did and he still brings some good things about it in the lives of other people. And look, be encouraged by that because man, I've really done some foolish, bad, harmful, destructive things. Listen, God's not going, boy, you put me in a pickle. How am I going to, how am I going to get anything good out of that? God's sovereign, man. It tells us in Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God ends up converting people on the boat in the midst of what Jonah's doing. And this is just a beautiful reminder. So they toss Jonah into the sea finally, begging God to forgive them for it. And verse 17 says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Now, this becomes the transition verse to the story as it goes on. But notice, this again is God's abundant mercy. Instead of God letting Jonah just drown and die and just get another prophet to do his work, God mercifully spares him to save his life in a unique way. Notice, you should underline it. It says the Lord, verse 17, had prepared a great fish. God had prepared in advance a unique animal among his creation whether it's a whale or a large fish he creates a unique animal specifically for this set purpose for this set day to accomplish what was necessary to show mercy to one of his servants and the lord had prepared this animal how long ago did god see this day coming knowing that jonah would need a little boat ride a little time to work through some things knowing that Jonah was going to falter and fail and God made a plan, God prepared a plan to resolve the things that Jonah had done wrong. I mean, this to me is incredible. God prepared in advance all the circumstances for what Jonah would need at this point in his life. God, you could say, even prepared for Jonah's failure. This says the Lord had prepared. He had prepared this great fish for this specific day in history god prepared not only for what jonah needed god even prepared for jonah's failure and what a reminder because that's what god does in our lives god knowing what we need god prepares in advance what we'll need so it's ready for us and god listen he even prepares for our times of failure 
God prepares in advance. He puts things in place to help spare us and redirect us and restore us even in our times of failure. And through Jonah's example here, we see that despite his behavior, God prepared, not just for his failure, God prepared a pathway for mercy. That's what this great fish was that swallowed him. It was a pathway for God's mercy. And let me say this, in Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection, God's prepared a pathway for mercy to spare and to save all of us. In fact, Jesus would say himself in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Wow. Jesus believed that Jonah got swallowed by a great fish and was in there for three days and three nights. Well, I, that's just got to be an allegory. Well, it, Jesus believed it, so I'm willing to believe it. I don't have a problem with it. God's a miracle working God. God prepared that fish to do that. And Jesus said, that story of Jonah, one of the biggest, most stubborn, rebellious indications of, of, of man's sinful ways, that became an incredible illustration and Jesus used it to basically preach the gospel about himself. He says in the same way, the Son of Man, the Savior, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus used Jonah's failure to preach the gospel <laughs> as an illustration, as a picture. What an amazing thing God prepares even for our failures. Let's pray together.